God, you threw the whole world a curveball when you showed us a kind of hope we'd never thought to look for. Born of poverty, between the walls of a rickety barn and into the fragile arms of a nervous young mom, Jesus arrived unable to defend himself, much less anyone else. We'd been hoping for security, and you gave us a baby. And then, the expectations kept being shattered. Jesus healed those who could do nothing for him. He handed out hope to people the world turned away. Jesus showed us a new way of life. A life that works from the inside out. Hope lives with us, then inside us, and moves from our hearts into the world. Jesus gave us hope beyond this life. Hope no one else has to give. Hope that shows up in a manger as a gift we don't deserve, but we gratefully receive. We call him Jesus. He is Emmanuel, God with us. Amen. Amen. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 11. We're going to be looking at a few passages over the next few weeks that draw our attention to the wonderful good news that we have in the Christmas season. And if you don't know about now, Christmas is right around the corner. I mean, we thought we would help you by decorating just as a a way of reminder. And doesn't it look good? Yeah, so uh, once again, you never applause for my sermons. Um, But I I just want to say thank you to Brian and Joanne for uh, your faithfulness every year doing this. And I know that your life group helped. And um, might, might be some other helpers out there, but you guys did a great job. It's awesome. So uh, we are coming into a season of expectation and anticipation. For some of us, that means excitement and wonder. And I, I, I think if you're under the age of probably 30, maybe 40, I don't know. It could be all expectation, all excitement, all wonder as you look forward to what's going to happen uh, around the Christmas season, around the Christmas tree, and maybe being off from work, being off from school, being together with friends and family. Uh, I, I hope your only, your only expectation of excitement and wonder isn't what gifts are under the tree. Um, but maybe there's just that childlike excitement that grips you every time this season comes around. Maybe for some of you it's begun in June as you started listening to Christmas music, planning the Christmas menu, starting your Christmas cards really early, all that good stuff. Um, Just as a side, if you listen to Christmas music before Thanksgiving, we should talk um, so uh, that's just a, an encouragement to you this morning. Um, but for some of us, 
The expectation and anticipation is not always so positive when we think about Christmas. Maybe it's the expectation of added grief as you mourn the loss of a loved one. And maybe it's the anticipation of juggling all sorts of schedules because someone who was supposed to be there with you isn't there this year. And for others, maybe it's the thought, you know, everything will look good on the outside. Maybe the families will gather. Maybe you'll sit around a table and be together physically. But you know, just right under the surface, there's just a lot of hostility. And there's conflict that arises out of the brokenness that exists in our lives. And so we come together in this season of Christmas to prepare our hearts. But we come also anticipating different things. The goal for this season as we spend time together in the worship of God and the study of His Word is to reveal who He says He is so that we might behold Him for who He is. We might honor Him and worship Him and look beyond the circumstances of our situations, whether good or bad, and see the goodness of Jesus this Christmas season. Now, the passages we're going to look at over the next several weeks are are nothing new. There's no secret hidden Christmas passage that I unearthed in, in my studies thinking, oh, this will really get their attention. We're going to look at passages that are very familiar to us. But we need the familiar. The familiar is powerful. It's the reminder of Christmas. Jesus, born in a manger. Jesus, who came to take away the sins of the world. Jesus, who conquered death and the grave. It's this reminder that gives us hope, hope to look forward with great confidence in the promises that God has made. And so today we're going to look at a passage from Isaiah chapter 11, and we're going to consider why, why those people who lived some 2,700 years ago needed hope. And why did God speak into their lives in the way that he did with the message of hope that he gave? And what does that message of hope mean for us? What do we need to hear from Isaiah's prophecy? What do we need to be encouraged with and challenged with? And so let's read what Isaiah writes. Isaiah chapter 11 Verses 1 through 5. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and strength, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord, and he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. 
Also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the season of hope that we have. Not hope in the things that we see with our eyes, but hope in the promise of the gift of your Son. Oh, Father, we are so grateful that Jesus was sent to die for us. Thank you for loving us so much that you gave us your Son. In this season of Christmas, God, as we anticipate um, the, the moments that maybe seem familiar to us, maybe the events that seem to happen year by year, May we be caught up in the wonder and awe of the goodness and grace of your Son. We thank you, Jesus. We are overwhelmed by your affection for us, by your faithfulness, by your grace and mercy. And so, Father, as we open your word in these moments that we have together, may your spirit teach us and guide us. May we leave here with a renewed sense of hope. Hope that is not based on circumstances, but hope that is based on the promise of your son. May we look forward with great joy for what he has done. Thank you for your kindness to us and for the privilege of being together as your body, the church. For it's in your name we ask all these things. Amen. So as we talk about hope, we need to recognize that hope is a powerful thing. How many of you have ever felt like you've been in a hopeless situation? That can be an extremely vulnerable place because without hope, it seems like there is no way out. There doesn't seem to be an answer in front of us. There doesn't seem to be any relief that is coming. But when we have hope, it changes everything. Even in the face of circumstances and of difficulty and of the frustrations that come with life, if you have hope, there is that renewed sense that it's going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. And when we say the word hope, we need to define what we're talking about. Because I'm not sure we always use the word hope correctly. I'm not sure we always understand what hope means. At least for me, hope has meant something different in different circumstances. When I was in college, um, I, I believe it was my junior year, I took a philosophy class, Introduction to Philosophy. It was quite possibly the most difficult class I took in college. And I studied biblical languages, I studied theology, I studied, I took a class on, on the, just the Gospel of Matthew for one semester, and the, the test at the end of the, the final was just basically, write me the book of Matthew in your own words. 
Like, I had those kinds of classes. I took this philosophy class. It was, in my mind, one of the most difficult classes. There was a, a, a couple reasons for that. Um, the, the professor that taught it, his name is Eddie Field, um, he was an intellectual, and he used words that I still cannot pronounce. Um, and, and so we're talking about philosophical concepts and constructs that were challenging, um, and, and because I didn't quite understand it, it was hard to follow and track with him. Uh, the class was on a Thursday night, and if you've ever had a night class in anything, um, it, it's very distracting because normally you do school during the day. This was a night class. It was one day a week, so it was like three hours long. Uh, it was just long. Um, I had a couple friends with me in the class, which didn't help um, as we would sometimes be distracted uh, by just being together that long. And my wife was in the class, um, and she's not a distraction at all. Um, so when it came time to take the final in this philosophy class, uh, we walked in and, and we still did things on paper. I know that's a strange concept for you youngins out there. Um, like my kids have a Chromebook and do everything digitally. They take pictures of written assignments and send them in. It's so strange to me, but we still had paper and pencil, and we walked in, and there was the dreaded blue book sitting on the table. And a blue book is basically a journal. It's blank. And it was an essay final explaining concepts and constructs from the world of philosophy using all of the knowledge that we learned all throughout the semester, and we had to share our thoughts about it. Well, I went into that final saying, I hope I do well. That somehow, in spite of my lack of effort all semester, I hoped that I would get some kind of good grade. That maybe this thing will turn out okay. Do you ever not feel ready for something? Like a presentation at work, or a project at work, or something at home, or like... You know you've had the time, but you're not ready. And you might think, oh, I hope it works out. Well, I can't remember my grade that I got on that final. I just know I passed the class. <laughs> um, and I do know that Eddie Field is no longer a professor. Uh, he's now a pastor in South Carolina. And I'd like to think I drove him to that career. Um, <clears throat> But when we talk about hope from a biblical perspective, we're not talking about wishful thinking. We're not talking about, I hope it gets figured out. That's not what God talks about when it comes to hope. Biblical hope is not just a wish that things will turn out all right in the midst of great difficulty. Biblical hope is a settled understanding of a certainty that is not based on circumstances. Okay, so in that sentence, what you need to remember are two things. Hope is not based on circumstances. 
biblical hope is not based on what's going on around us. Does that make sense? It's a trust not based on ignorance. It's not blind hope. It's not, God, you have it all figured out. I'll just close my eyes and wait for you to work it out. But it's an expected response of an outcome based on God's declared truth. What gives us hope is based upon what God has said. Because his word is settled in heaven. Biblical hope reminds us that our assurance is rooted in a God who is sovereign. And he is sovereign to direct and oversee all the circumstances of our lives and to bring about exactly what he will. Our hope is rooted in the sovereignty of God who brings about his purposes. And we know his purposes. That his name will be made great among the nations. And that he will gather for himself a people that are his. And his purposes will stand. And in the midst of this message of hope this morning is found for us, tucked into the Old Testament, a passage that a prophet writes to God's people concerning a message of great hope. And so for us to unpack the meaning of what Isaiah is writing here in Isaiah 11, I want us to take a step back just for a minute. And I want us to look at the history of the people that Isaiah is saying these things to. And it began for us, as we know, in the book of Genesis, the first book of the scriptures, with a man named Abram. And that God came to this man, Abram, and said to him, Abram, if you trust me and follow me, I will make your name great. I will give you a land, a great land to inhabit. I will give you a seed that will be descendants that outnumber the sand on the seashore and the stars in the sky. And I will make you a blessing and that all the nations of the world will be blessed through you. And through this man, Abram, who then became Abraham, came a family line. And as we read through the book of Genesis, we read how this one man had a son who had a son who had some sons, and they became the tribes of Israel. Genesis ends with Abraham's descendants living in relative goodness in the land of Egypt under the leadership of Joseph. But some 400 years later, as we open the, the, or turn the page really from Genesis to Exodus, that nation was now being oppressed by Pharaoh. And in their cries, the cries that come from people that were being enslaved, God heard them and raised up a man named Moses to deliver them. And it wasn't anything Moses did. He was just the spokesman. But God was faithful in delivering his people through a series of plagues and miraculous events. He led a nation of over 2 million people, likely, out of Egypt and directing them into the promised land. But we read that that nation 
struggled in their belief of God. As they wandered through the wilderness, they would often murmur and complain, whether it was complaining to Moses or complaining to Moses that was really directed towards God. The people were often very um, frustrating to those who were leading them in the worship of the true God. And we read in Numbers 14, and this was a passage I think we looked at a few weeks ago, and it's something else that I think has been brought to our attention in different places. But in Numbers 14, we read that the people were growing frustrated because as they were in the wilderness, some spies were sent into the land to look at the land of promise that, was, that God was giving them. And the report came back that it's beautiful, it's awesome, it's everything that God said it was. But the problem was there were giants in the land. And there was no way that the nation of Israel thought that they could go in and overpower these giants in their eyes um, and take the land. And so the people sided with the, the report of 10 negative people and didn't trust the report of two positive people saying, hey, it's going to be difficult, but God's with us. And when Joshua was part of those spies that were sent in, he said, listen, it's ours we got to trust God. But they didn't. So what did they do in Numbers 14 after hearing the report? They wanted to replace Moses and Aaron. And not just say, hey, we're electing new leadership. They wanted to get rid of them. And they, why did they want to get rid of them? Because they're like, we're not going where you're leading us. What does it say in Numbers 14? They would rather turn around and go to Egypt to the place they knew in bondage and slavery than to keep marching forward into the unknown of this promised land. And as they um, were judged by God and that whole generation died off in unbelief, God was faithful and kept his promise to his people. They entered the land and great victories were given through Joshua. They inhabited the land and, and God blessed them and were faithful. At the end of the the book of Joshua, Joshua commands the people to be faithful, to keep trusting in God, to keep believing in his promises. And and in the next book in the chronological history of Israel, we read in the book of Judges that everybody did what was right in their own eyes. And they were judged by God. And these cycles and their unbelief and judgment would come and they would cry out from their oppressors and God would deliver them through the hands of the judges and he would rescue them and then, oh no, they would do it all over again. And after judges came through, the final judge, Samuel, was, was called and, and the people didn't want judges anymore. They wanted to be like the other nations and they said to Samuel, give us a king like the other nations. And God relented and gave them a king, and his name is Saul. And we know that Saul had no heart for God. He was wicked in the sight of the Lord. He did things by his own strength, and the Spirit of God departed from Saul. But God was faithful. And through the next king that God chose, that God anointed, named David, David had a great zeal for God, a great love for God and the worship of Him. And the nation blossomed and prospered under David's leadership to such a great deal that David wanted to build a house for God. And God said, listen, you can't build a house for me. But I promise you, David, that through your line will be a kingdom that will never end. 
he made David a promise in 2 Samuel 7 that he would establish an eternal rule through this man. Now, David wasn't perfect, and neither was his son Solomon. Solomon built the house for God, the temple, but we know that Solomon had a tragic end. It's interesting when you read about Solomon's end in 1 Kings. I mean, from the time that he fell off and was following the ways of this world, there's just like half a chapter devoted to the rest of his life. It's like he did these things and God said, okay, I'm moving on. And when Solomon died as a tragic king, the kingdom of Israel was split. By the time we get to the book of Isaiah, the nation of Israel is a nation in crisis. Wicked king after wicked king comes and drives the nation further and further away from the Lord. Now, when you read the Old Testament narrative of the kings, there are some good ones, some. But by and large, this nation both northern kingdoms, the ten tribes of the north, and the southern king, uh, tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south, were led by wicked people. It would seem, at least from the perspective of Isaiah's contemporaries, that the promise that God made to Abraham and the promise that God made to David was not going to be fulfilled. There was no way they could see it. Isaiah wrote these words 750 years before the time of Christ. The nation was in turmoil. It was split and divided. It was so polluted that they looked like the nations around them. And God would use those nations to judge them. Isaiah, the prophet, is called by God to speak a word of warning to the nations. God loves these people. He has a faithful love for them. And he rises up these prophets to come and warn them, to bring them back to him. And these warnings are not just these, you know, Warnings that come from a parent that you, 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 the child knows that there's no way that they're going to keep their word on that. Do you ever make an unrealistic warning to your kids? If you do that one more time, you're never doing this again. Yeah, well, you know, those kind of warnings fall on deaf ears. That's why our kids keep doing the crazy things they do because they're like, yeah, no way you're doing that. And God speaks warnings and he brings them into reality. He keeps his word. And so we read in, in the early chapters of Isaiah, if you want to turn real quick to Isaiah chapter 5, and God speaks to the prophet through a parable in Isaiah 5. Let me just read a few of these verses in Isaiah 5. This is what we read. Let me sing now, I'm reading in verse 1. Let me sing now for my well-beloved a song of my beloved concerning his vineyard. My well-beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill. He dug it all around, removed its stones, and planted it with the choicest vine. And he built a tower in the middle of it and also hewed out a wine vat in it. 
then he expected it to produce good grapes, but it produced only worthless ones. And so let's just take a step back and, and, and look at this for a minute. God planted a vineyard, and its name was Israel. And God planted this vineyard and provided for it. He put walls around it to protect it. He put a tower in the midst of it so that the enemies that would want to come in and devour what was in the vineyard would be um, taken away. What was the expectation of the vine owner? That it would produce good grapes. What do we read? It produced worthless ones. And so we read in verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done it? And so God steps in and he says to Israel, What else do I have to do to show you how precious you are to me? How much more faithful do I need to show myself? God has done everything for Israel. And then he says, why then, or why when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? So this is what God says in verse 5. So now let me tell you what I am going to do to my vineyard, which is Israel. I will remove its hedge and it will be consumed. I will break down its wall and it will become trampled ground. I will lay it waste. It will not be pruned or hoed, but briars and thorns will come up. I will also charge the clouds to rain, no rain on it. So the owner of the vineyard has every right to do what he is going to do to vines that do not produce good fruit. And what does Isaiah say? What does he write on behalf of God? That God is going to raise the vineyard to the ground. He's not going to protect it. He's going to let it be trampled upon. He will not care for it. He will allow the weeds and the thorns to come up and choke it. And that becomes a picture of Isaiah's warning throughout the rest of the book of what is to come to Israel for their unbelief. This is who they are. And this is what God is going to do. And so in Isaiah 5, you make your way through these series of chapters of God warning, God exhorting, God saying, this is what I'm going to do. And Isaiah is called to be the prophet that is to come to bring this message of warning. And now we find ourselves in Isaiah 11. And you're thinking, Phew, we made it. We finally got to Isaiah 11. But this is what he's saying. In Isaiah 11, we read in verse 1, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from its roots will bear fruit. So just picture with me, a tree that has been cut down. And it, it has been cut down for the reason of it being unfruitful. Now, I know grapes grow on vines, but the imagery is still there. They just cut off. There is no prosperity under the branches anymore. 
kind of like a stump like this. And in the midst of this stump that has been cut off, you have a new shoot growing from it. And this is what Isaiah is saying in the midst of the struggle and difficulty that, Isaiah, uh, that Israel is facing. That you've been cut off for unbelief and things look desperate. But then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse and a branch from its, his roots will bear fruit. That in the midst of their trouble, God is still giving hope to the nation. That there's going to be new life out of what has been cut off. In the midst of their despair, God assures that there is still life in that stump with its roots in the Davidic line. That what God told David in 2 Samuel 7 is still true. That even though it looks like the nation will be cut off and that there will never be a king again, that in the roots of that stump are the promises of God that will still produce what God promised it will produce. And so you fast forward for a moment from what Isaiah says here in chapter 11, 750 years later, that when a baby was born that cold night outside of Jerusalem, where the shepherds had heard the songs of the angels and ran to the place where the baby was to be born. And as they fell and worshipped this king who has come, we see that this baby came from the line of David. He is the shoot from the stump of Jesse. It, what's interesting about this is in verse, chapter 11, verse 1, Isaiah, through the inspiration of God, writes that this shoot will come from Jesse, not David. He goes to David's dad, almost as a replacement. Not saying that David was terrible, but we're not going to make it all about David. We're going to make it about God's promise. And we see that Matthew's point in what he writes in his gospel, he begins with the genealogy. You know, the list of names that you skip forward through in your Bible readings because it's like, oh, it's just a bunch of names. But Matthew's point in Matthew's gospel about who Jesus is and where he came from points us back to Jesse and points us back to Abraham. And we see all of these promises of hope, of what God is promising to do, being fulfilled in this child that was born. The son of David who came to save his people from their sins. And we read in verses 2 through 5 the unique characteristics of this king that is to come. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and strength. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness, he will judge the poor 
and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. And also righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. You read about this new shoot that is to come that finds its fulfillment in the final king that is promised who is named Jesus Christ. And you read about how he leads And oh, this is the king that we desperately need. The world has never known a king like this that has the Spirit of God resting upon him. That in all of his judgments, in all of his wisdom, in all of the ways that he plans, it is good for his subjects. That he cares for the poor that he lends an ear to those that are struggling and that he leads with a righteous judgment. And just with the breath of his lips, those who fall against him are slayed as the wicked. And what wraps him up is the righteousness as a belt around his loins holding everything together. This is the king that Israel needed and that they never had, but that is promised to come. And this is the message of hope that Israel needed to hear in the midst of a time when everything was in shambles around them. That God is righteous and faithful to keep his promises. And yet every Christmas, we miss something about Jesus's first coming. We do. It was only temporary. We put a lot of expectation and effort into this announcement of the first coming. And yet we forget that he has promised to come again. And that is the full reality of what Isaiah is saying here in chapter 11 about this king. Because when Jesus came the first time, and, 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 and in no way am I saying was his first coming minor. His, his first coming accomplished our redemption. But what Isaiah is saying here about this king is there are certain things that this king will do that has not even yet been realized, even in his first coming. He accomplished our redemption in his first coming. But Jesus is not yet leading from a throne on this earth. Leading the people as he said he would here in Isaiah 11. The way that he will. In fact, we read later in Isaiah in chapter 53 that this tender shoot is going to be cut off in his earthly ministry. And we read in Isaiah 53 that it pleased the Father to crush him as he died on the cross and was buried and three days later rose victoriously over sin and death. And yet there is still something we long for wrapped up in the promises of Isaiah 11. There is something we hope for as a people that have been brought into the promise of God through the gift of the Son in the first advent. And it is that the King will reign over His creation. 
This king who ascended into heaven is promised to descend again. And we read this in Revelation 19 and in Revelation 21. Let me just read to you a few verses in Revelation 19 about the coming of the king. In Revelation 19, verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. His eyes are a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written on him which no one knows except himself. He is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Our king is coming. Church, we celebrate the first advent and it brings us great joy. Jesus came and hallelujah he came. But let us not forget this Christmas season that our king is coming again. And he's coming to redeem us and rescue us and to lead in righteousness over the nations. And that's what Isaiah builds upon in Isaiah 11. Look at verses 6 through 10. And the wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain for the lord for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the lord as the waters cover the sea then in that day the nations will resort to the root of jesse who will stand as a signal for the peoples and his resting place will be glorious that part of this promise is rooted into what is yet to come and what the bible refers to in revelation 21 as the millennial kingdom when jesus comes back and sits on his throne in Jerusalem, the world at that time will be at peace and be restored. It's kind of like what Paul says in Romans when it says that the creation groans for the existence of God and that when the king returns, the creation is able to be restored to what it once was, where you have a bear and a cow grazing in the field together. Like in the millennial kingdom, there is no wild kingdom show where animals are going to be devouring each other. It's going to be restored as they live in habitation together. And the king will sit on the throne and in faithfulness lead his people. Church, Christmas is a season that is filled with hope for all sorts of reasons. But above all, may this season remind us that Jesus came the first time to redeem us so that when he comes the second time, he will gather us to be with him. We have great hope this morning. We have great hope every morning because we know that God keeps his word.
And we know that His Son will return. And when He does, He will rule the world in a perfect way. If your hope this morning is fixed on anything else this season other than Jesus Christ, you will be misguided and that hope will fail you. If your hope is rooted in what you get, the moths will eat it. If your hope is rooted in, oh, my family will be together and everything will be great, it'll only last for a moment. If your hope is rooted in the person of Jesus Christ, He will not disappoint you. He will fill your heart with joy overflowing. I said to Brian this morning as they were practicing, uh, they were practicing the song Joy to the World. That's the first song we sung this morning, right? It's not a Christmas hymn. It's a song about His second coming. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. And that is the hope. That is the joy that we have this season. Jesus will never fail you. His promises are certain. And to that, we can only say amen and amen.